All right, well, good morning, church. We're in Genesis chapter 7 this morning. As we uh, continue our verse-by-verse study through the book, you know, some people say that Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, which are basically the chapters of Noah and the flood, uh, they come, those, those chapters come under, under the most fire. They are, they're the, the number one chapters in the book of Genesis, the, those in chapter uh, 19, I actually think, um, that are attacked by the, the school of higher criticism. Um, and a lot of people say, well, you, you know, it's just because of the flood. It's just because of the flood story. We have, a, we have a hard time trying to wrap our heads around the fact that it was a global flood and not a local flood or, you know, you know all these different things that they may talk about. But I'm, I'm going to tell you that uh, it has nothing. The reason these chapters come under criticism has nothing to do with the flood. Right? We live with floods. I mean, we live in Washington, okay? So... But believe it or not, despite our experience with floods and rains right, up here in Washington State, uh, flooding in the United States as a whole, right? it's cost taxpayers, believe it or not. Since the year 2000, it's cost taxpayers $850 billion. A trillion dollars, over a trillion dollars since 1980. Right? Uh, flooding is responsible for two-thirds of the cost of all natural disasters. And the United States, I don't know if you know this fact or not, but the United States experiences an urban flooding event every two to three days, and they have for the last 25 years. So flooding in the United States is something that we all know about. Probably, you know, you've watched it on the news. You may have experienced it yourself, obviously, in a smaller, you know, not global flood type of thing. You've never had to get on an ark. You've never had to, you know, I went down to Biloxi, Mississippi in 2006, helped with Katrina relief. I saw the destruction from the, the flooding that was caused by the hurricane. I heard the stories about how the people had to, you know, punch through their ceiling to get up into their attic so they could then punch through the roof and get up on top of their house. Um, I, you know, I was helped, we were helping paint a little girl's room where she wanted the room painted to look like a water scene with flish, fish, you know, on their walls and everything like that. And the reason she wanted to paint it like that was so she could remember what she went through because of the flood. I'm like, oh, this girl's suffering some trauma. Someone needs to, to get her some, you know, some help. But um, the flash f- floods and flash floods and, and these type of things are the leading cause of weather-related deaths every year. And the worst state is Texas, by the way. So if you don't want to be involved in flooding, don't move to Texas. Right? But so, so we have many floods of many types that we've dealt with ourselves. We might, like I said, you might have experience with it. Uh, and it's, but it's nothing, right? Nothing on the scale of what's here in Genesis. Right? And God has promised never to flood the earth again. So a flood like this is never going to be seen again in this scale, but, the, but judgment is coming again, right? Judgment is coming again, and that is the issue that people have with these chapters. It's nothing to do with the flood. It has to do with God's judgment, right? 
Same with chapter 19, which is Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. Chapters that have to deal with God's judgment or books like Revelation, for example, that have to do with God's judgment. Because these chapters, they go seemingly go against their picture of God. They, they, these chapters go against what they want to believe about God. Right? That a righteous and just God has to judge sin. They don't necessarily want to accept it in the same way as the Bible truthfully tells it. Right? Which is why they have trouble accepting the flood. Right? They don't want to accept that it happened. They don't want to accept that it was judgment because if they admit that, then they have to accept the truth about the coming judgment. Right? Genesis, and Re- Genesis and Revelation are tied together in that way, in that aspect. Right? Two of the themes, you know, two of the most controversial books in the Bible. Why? Mainly because of the pictures of God's judgment. Right? But here's the thing. In between those two books, so to speak, we have Jesus right? in the Gospels. And what I mean by that is that Jesus affirms both the truth of Noah and the flood, right? and the truth of the tribulation and the truth of his second coming. Jesus says in Matthew 24, and we've gone over this, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, What does that mean? That means they were paying absolutely zero attention to the fact that an ark was being built, right? They weren't paying any attention to this ark. They were just ignoring it altogether. They were just going about their daily business and paying absolutely zero attention to Noah, who was telling them that there was a flood coming, that God's judgment was coming. They were just absolutely not listening to him, right? So they were just going about their daily business until the day when Noah entered the ark, right? And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Right? So the truth is, if you can't accept the flood in Genesis, and you don't want to accept the book of Revelation, then you actually aren't accepting Jesus. Because Jesus affirms both. And he uses Noah as an illustration of it. Right? You're denying God's word if you don't want to accept it. Because Jesus is the word of God. And Jesus affirmed both. You're calling Jesus a liar. So, you don't get to pick and choose with God's word. You have to go with all the Bible or none of the Bible. It's all or nothing. So let's read. We're going to read Genesis chapter 7. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. This is basically the flood. So, Genesis chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Could have left some of those out of the ark. I wouldn't have complained. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. 
In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On this very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words, and I thank you for the truth of these words, and I thank you for the picture of salvation that's found in the story of Noah's ark in this true historical picture of God's judgment, but also a picture of God's grace, picture of God's patience, picture of God's mercy. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that your words be spoken and that you speak them to us. We just thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start with a little pet peeve of mine. Maybe pet peeve is too strong of a language. Uh, it's just something that I think needs to be changed. If you have your Bible with you, and you look at verse 1 of chapter 7, um, and in, in mine, and I'm reading the ESV, and I'm not one who's going to harp on translations. Okay? I don't care what translation you read necessarily. I don't believe King James is the, you know, the only perfect version of the Bible, right? Or anything like that. But if you look at verse 1, uh, it says, in my translation... Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. Right. Now, not all translations say this. Your translation may say something different. If your translation says, come into the ark, give yourself a little clap on the back. If your translation says, go into the ark, right, cross out that word go and write come. Actually, a more literal translation of the actual Hebrew is enter the ark. Okay. Yeah. Enter the ark, right? What's the difference between go and come? Everything, right? The Hebrew word is bow. It, it means come. It means enter. It can mean go, right? It's translated come over 1,400 times in the Bible. It's translated go around 120-something, I think. Why does it bother me that some of the translations put the word go and not the word come? Well, this is the picture. 
I'm not Jesus, but just for a second, imagine, right? Jesus says, go into the ark. Or Jesus says, come, come into the ark, Noah. That's a huge difference, right? Jesus said, come follow me. He didn't say, go, follow me. Right? Jesus said, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden. Jesus said, let my children come to me. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, right, I will never cast out. There's a big difference between come and go. Right? There is a big difference. It's a little thing. It's my opinion. You don't have to agree with me on this. It's okay, right? But here's the thing. God was drawing them near. He was not sending them away. Right? It's comforting to know that God calls you to follow him and that he goes before you and that he is a light unto your path. Right? So just remember that. Cross that out. Right? And come. Or go. Or no, come. Sorry. Right? So let's talk about the flood. You know the basics. I assume you know the basics of the flood. God called Noah to build the ark. That was a huge daunting task. Could have taken anywhere, you know, they say 100 years, but we're talking 50, 75, somewhere in there probably, to build the ark. He did it. He did it. The Lord commanded him. It's a huge ark. We talked about it last week. It was more than big enough to hold all the animals that God brought to the ark for Noah and Noah and the families and the provisions that they needed. Noah knew that he was going to have to get on the ark, but he didn't know exactly, because God told him the ark was his salvation, but he didn't know what that entailed. Anything beyond that, he didn't, know, he didn't know. So God calls Noah into the ark, right? He tells Noah for him and his family, right? And then two of every kind of animal, right? Clean and unclean, male and female. There's only male and female, right? There's no non-binary animals, right? And everything that creeps on the ground and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Right? And so did the animals. The animals did all that the Lord commanded them because Noah didn't have to go out and hunt these animals down to bring them on the ark, which was you know, a big time saver for Noah for have the Lord to send the animals to him. Right? And I'm sure, how was Noah keeping track anyway? I want to know. How, I mean, you know how many different types of animals are there are? Right. Did he have a list of all the different types of insects and creepy crawly things? So he knew whether or not they were on the ark. I have no idea. He just had to trust the Lord, right? That all the animals were getting on the ark just like he was, right? And Noah was 600 years old when he entered the ark. And here's the thing. He enters the ark. And there's a, people get a little bit confused about timelines, but I'm going to tell you how it happened, okay? Take my word for it. Noah gets on the ark and the Lord closes the door behind him. And the rain starts seven days after. That means Noah was on the ark for seven days not knowing exactly what was going to happen. Knowing that the ark was salvation. Knowing that judgment was coming. That flood was coming. Didn't, maybe he, like I said, we don't know that Noah even really, truly understood what a flood was in that aspect because there was really, they had seen nothing like that at this point. It had never rained at this point. So Noah's on that ark for seven days. And I wonder what it was like those first seven days. Is something going to happen? It's not raining yet. 
Can we get off this ark? It's kind of smelly, you know. Stretch my legs, walk around the ark for a little bit. But they had to trust in the Lord, right? And that's what it is. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Lord said, get on the ark now. And he got on the ark, right? Getting on the ark is a huge step of faith, right? Building the ark is one thing. Getting on the ark is another thing entirely, right? Because the Lord never told Noah how long he was going to be on the ark. The Lord told him how long it was going to rain, 40 days and 40 nights. That's all the Lord told him. Noah probably thought when it started raining, okay, 40 days, 40 nights. Then we'll be getting off the ark and we'll be safe. Noah had no idea how long it was going to be. He didn't know anything about waters coming up from the ground. He didn't know what this flood was going to look like. He didn't know what was in store for him at all, except for the fact that the Lord was going to keep him safe. That's all that Noah knew. The Lord had promised salvation to Noah. You saw it back in chapter 6, verse 18. But Noah still had to make a choice to get on the ark. The Lord called him onto the ark and Noah obeyed and went. That was a test of faith. Right? After all those years of preparation of building the ark and of being a preacher of righteousness and telling everyone that the flood was coming, to then step into the ark and by, you know, and by faith allow the Lord to shut you in is a huge step when you have no idea what's coming. You have no idea how long you're going to be in there. And it's important to remember that the Lord shut him in. Noah didn't close the door. You know, it's quite possible Noah couldn't physically even close the door. I don't know. But the Lord shut him in. God closed it. At the same time, we should also remember, the Bible tells us God is patient. It even tells us this about in the days of Noah, that God was patient. Right? God did not want anyone to perish. So God kept that door open to the very last possible second. He gave man every chance to repent and ask for forgiveness and turn to God. But he just knew that the hearts of all men were evil continuously. But there comes a time then when God has to shut the door. Right? Right? When the door is open... It's open. No one can shut it. This is what Jesus says. This is what's said about Jesus. Right? When the door is open, it's open. When it's shut, but though, guess what? It's shut. No one can open it. Right? Jesus talks about this, for example, when he talks about the narrow door in Luke chapter 13. Right? He says, when the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on it, right? This has to do with weddings, right? Galilean weddings, Jewish wedding ceremonies. If you weren't ready to go with the wedding party when, when the bride groom came in and got the bride and went to the party, if you weren't out there and ready to go with the party and you were running late because you slept in and your alarm didn't go off and you showed up after they closed the door for the party, you were stuck outside. You weren't be able to come in. You didn't get to enjoy the feast, the wedding feast, right? So that's what Jesus is talking about in Luke 13, right? He says, when the master of the house is risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door and say, Lord, open, open the door to us. He's going to answer, I don't know where you come from, right? 
Jesus is the door. That's what it tells us in John. And he is the master of the door. And the Bible tells us that whoever enters by him will be saved. However, guess what? That door is not going to stay open forever. As it tells us in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. When Jesus keeps that door open, no one can shut it. But when Jesus closes that door, no one can open it. So Jesus closed, you know, God closed Noah in. He was secure. He was secure in the salvation. But everyone outside couldn't get in anymore. It was too late. And we talked about this. There was a population of somewhere around eight to, seven to eight billion people on earth at that time. That's why it's important, as it tells us in Isaiah 55, chapter 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Right? Now is the time. So it tells us then that it started raining. It didn't just rain. Right? There was way more than rain. Right? So verse uh, 11 and 12, in the 600th year of Noah's life, gives us the specifics. So Noah probably jotted this down somewhere. A record of exactly what day it was. I'm surprised he doesn't have you know, hours and seconds on here as well. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So water came from above and water came from below. If you remember when we talked about creation, how God has this canopy above the earth that was keeping the earth perfectly watered, perfectly moist, like... You know, there it was a, this firmament and it watered all the plants, this mist like dew in the morning that watered all the plants, kept everything healthy and kept everything perfect. But there was never rain like what, you know, how we know rain, rain here in, in Washington State. It had never rained. 1,650 some odd years after creation, it had never rained, but yet there was no drought, right? God's creation. He had it worked out perfectly. And like I said, we know something about rain. Right? So you have the fountains of the deep, these underground water reservoirs that came crashing up through the ground, and you had all the rain that started falling for 40 days. How many days, what do you think the record is here in Washington State for most days with consecutive rain? Because if anybody's going to have anything that close, that's come close to this, it's Washington State, right? right? It's 33 days is the record for consecutive days with rain in Seattle. And during that time, we had just under 14 inches of rain in those 33 days. That was in, um, I don't know when that was. I didn't write it down. Um, the most rain we've ever had in one year was in 1950 when we had 55 inches of rain in Washington State. The most rain we had in one day was five inches of rain in October 2003. I don't remember that day, but, you know, we get so much rain that kind of just, you forget about how much happens at one time. You know, there was a time in Washington State, there was a 120-day period from, from late 1998 to 1999 where we, went 100, where we went 90 days of rain. They weren't all consecutive, though. And they had about 19 inches of rain in that 120-day period. We get lots of rain here. 40 days and 40 nights of rain probably wouldn't even make us turn our heads. We'd just be like, oh, is it going to stop raining? I don't know, Right? We get so much rain up here that we, that, that we just sort of get used to it. So when we go to other places, like I told you, I went down to Biloxi to help with the uh, Katrina relief. And we were painting houses and we were, you know, uh, putting, doing plaster work and building fences and doing all this kind for these people whose houses were damaged by the floods and the hurricane and everything like that. 
And, uh, and the sentiment among most everyone down there that we were helping was, if, it ever, if the weather ever is like that again, we're leaving. We're not even going to hang around like we did last time. We're just going to get out of town. And so one of the days that we were there, it rained really, really heavy, which might be a normal thing for Biloxi, Mississippi. I honestly don't know what the, what the weather's like down there. But it rained a lot, so much that when we came out in the morning to get into our cars, there was probably about 12 inches of water running down the road. And we couldn't get out right away. But we didn't think anything of it. We were from Washington. We are like, whatever, it's rain, right? So we get in our cars, we figure out how to get out, we go grab our coffee at the local coffee shop, we head to our houses, we're working on the houses, we're painting walls, we're putting up plasterboard, we're doing all this stuff. And one of the houses, what the house I was working on, uh, was owned by one of the local uh, state sheriffs. And, uh, and we're working away, woo-doo-doo, painting, have, you know, it was great. All of a sudden he shows up, comes storming in the house, what are you doing? We're like, painting? He's like, it's raining. We're like, yeah. Go home. We don't work in rain like this. Get out of the house now. So we all had to leave, put down our paint, get in the car. We go find where everyone else was and end up helping on another house because he was like, we don't work in rain like this. We're like, this is nothing. We're not even sure what you're afraid of. But, you know, so we have this different idea about rain just because of where we live, right? But it didn't just rain at the flood. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. But the waters came up from below. They broke through the ground, right? The earth opened up. There was great meteorological and geological catastrophic upheavals, right? The earth was flooded. The earth was flooded, right? It literally changed continents, right? It it literally formed continents, Nothing would be the same after the flood. It says all the highest mountains were covered. Right? Now, we don't know how high the mountains were at the time, right? because I'm pretty sure mountain ranges were changed. Okay? But we know how high, for example, the mountain, Mount Ararat, we know how high it is now. Right? Its, it's highest peak is 17,000 feet. The, the ark settled on Mount Ararat. Right? So that means... You know, the the water was at least higher than that because it says that that the water was 15 cubits uh, deep over the mountains. That means it was 22 and a half feet at least over the highest mountains, which gives, just so you know, that's that's high enough for the ark to float safely on the waters over all the mountains, right? And of course, we also know that people were seeking high ground. A flood like this happens and, you know, People aren't just jumping on the roof of their house. They're heading up the mountains. They're, they're heading to, to high ground. Job 12, 15, it gives us a picture of, of the flood. It says, that, talking about God, it says, if he withholds the waters, they dry up. But if he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. And God sent them out. And they overwhelmed the land. Right? They overwhelmed the earth. They were strong and mighty. And it's only the Lord that has the power to do this to overwhelm the land with water like this, to flood the earth. So it tells us that water prevailed on the earth. At the end of the chapter there, it says water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So roughly five months. The rains stopped after 40 days and 40 nights, but the water continued to rise for another 110 days. 
everything on the dry land and whose nostrils had the breath of life, it tells us, right, died. You blotted out all life from the earth, right? Seven to eight billion people somewhere in there perished. And those are, you know, conservative numbers. All the animals perished except for what was on the ark, right? And except for what lived in the seas. I'm not saying some of them didn't perish, but it never mentions, okay, the animals in the seas. So, right, Loch Ness Monster? He didn't perish in the flood. All the dinosaurs died, except for what Noah brought on the ark, right? And the ark just floated safely on all the waters. I told you the ark could, you know, right itself. It could go up to 90 degrees and come right back to itself. So, and Noah and his family on there the whole time having no clue how long this was going to be, what the ride was going to be like. What's this I'm experiencing now? My tummy is queasy, right? <laughs> Seasickness. I mean, all this new stuff for him and just trusting in the Lord that they were going to come through this, right? This catastrophic global flood the likes of which they had never seen, right? It tells us in Psalms 104, it says that he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they may not cover the earth again. That's the power of God. Right? He unleashed the waters and he will bring the waters back down and put them in their place. If you had never read the biblical account of a flood, you just heard the story. You knew about Noah's Ark, right? It was just like a children's story. Right? But you really knew, never read the biblical account of the flood and you sat down. You wanted to read it for yourself. You'd heard people talk about it. Maybe heard people discuss it or argue whether or not it was a global flood or a local flood or whatever. Right. And you wanted to read it yourself. You sat down, you picked up the Bible, and you started reading it. Would you think that this was a local flood or a global flood? There's no way for you to think that this is a local flood. No way at all, because the Bible does not say that. Right? There is no confusion here over what the Bible is saying. Right? The Bible is clear on the matter. Jesus is clear on the matter. When he mentions it, you know, in Matthew and Luke, when he talks about it, right? The flood came and destroyed them all, Jesus says. Everyone. That's not a local flood. Right? So, so the, that's the biggest argument about, or one of them, about the flood. Was it local or was it global? It's global. The Bible doesn't teach otherwise. Right? It is a global flood. I mean, why would you build an ark for a local flood? I mean, it seems like such an exaggeration for just a couple of rivers overflowing, right? If you're, if you're covering the mountains that had possibly heights of 17,000 feet or higher, and you're covering them over that 22 feet, 15 cubits, whatever it says it was, that's not a local floods. Local floods don't get that high, right? When it says that all flesh died, that every man died, that all these animals died, guess what? That doesn't happen in a local flood. Everyone doesn't die. Local floods don't rise for five months. Those aren't, that's not a local flood. Now, in all the years of the past since then, 
We've found more and more and more and more evidence to support the fact that it's a global flood, right? Fish and marine fossils found in the mountains of such places like Montana, right? A state that's roughly 600 miles from the ocean and on average of 3,000 feet above sea level. Not only that, okay, there is the presence of abundant fossil remains of marine life at the tops of every major mountain range in the world, including the Himalayas. How did they get there? Scientists have no answer for that question. They don't have an answer for that question. That's just like the fossilized remains of the ark that possibly are, right, or that they've possibly found on Mount Ararat. Uh, how did a boat get up there? Is there another good reason you have for a boat being up there? Whether they're debating whether or not it's Noah's Ark. Do you know of another boat? Right? I don't, they don't have an answer for that. Matter of fact, the individual stratum in the sedimentary rock that's found worldwide, right? This, that's, it gives evidence that all this, this stratum was formed by a rapid and continuous cataclysmic process. Right? Sedimentary records across the world all speak the same story. Right? The sedimentary layers of geological columns is where they find fossils. Right? And they use these to determine the age of the area and to determine the age of all this stuff. Right? If, if evolution was true and the flood was false, uh, you should be able to find somewhere a transitional form, right? a fossil record, in other words, that proves that this creature became that creature that became this creature. You should see the evidence in the layers. But that's not what fossil records show. Right? They show that many fossils were, greatly, were created quickly and were created under great pressure and that they're all mixed up. Right? You find dog fossils next to dinosaur bones, which doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not to evolutionists. Right? So it's common to find massive fossil graveyards consisting of jumbled and smashed and contorted fossil remains that give the appearance of a large number of animals that were destroyed simultaneously by an incredible force. Oh, hmm, right? What force would that be, I wonder? Do you remember when we were talking about creation back when we started the book of Genesis back in January? And, we were, and, and I told you about in Canada back in 2011 that they discovered a dinosaur fossil that has guts, armor, and even some of the skin intact. Right? It's so well-preserved, they dubbed it the dinosaur mummy. Right? It was a herbivore called a nodosaur. And the team carved through this 15,000 pounds of rock to dig out this dinosaur's body. And it was from its snouts to its hip, intact and well-preserved. Right? So why was this notosaur so intact? Well, most of the other fossils are just teeth and bones for the most part, right? Well, the scientists said, and this was like a quote directly from them, well, we believe this was buried quickly under the sea. Oh, how do you bury a dinosaur quickly under lots of water, right? And that the minerals infused its skin and its body parts to preserve it, and then centuries upon centuries, they say, of rock and sediment piled on top of it. Centuries, huh? No. How about months and months, maybe? How about hours and hours, right? I mean, evolutionists say no, right? This has to take a long time, hundreds of millions of years or whatever they want to tell you the age is. But there's an event that happened not too long ago in our life for us here in Washington State that you might remember, 
It was called Mount St. Helens, right? May 18th, 1980, I think it was. When Mount St. Helens exploded, scientists had to start thinking differently about how they said things were created and how long it took to create things, right? Because the rapid formation of volcanic sediments from Mount St. Helens showed that the Earth's sedimentary rock record could have been deposited during the flood, right? The rapid canyon formation, right, from Mount St. Helens, the canyons that it created from the explosion, right? Similar to the Grand Canyon, for example, showed that that these canyons could have been created quickly, not millions of years, right? I mean, you have a canyon that was created by Mount St. Helens. It's 125 feet deep. Geologists would tell you, oh, that took millions of years to create a canyon like that, right? Based on the strata layers. That's how they would measure the time. You know, they took a volcanic rock, some sort of, a, 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 I don't want to say fossilized, but some sort of rock that came from the explosion of Mount St. Helens, right? That was created from the explosion, they sent it off to scientists to determine the age of the rock. They didn't tell them where it was from. They said, we found this rock. We think it's you know, possibly old. You measure the time for us. They did all the tests. They sent it back, and they told them it was somewhere around two and a half to three million years old. They said, well, we got you on this one. It's less than 24 hours old, Right? The Grand Canyon, they will tell you that the Grand Canyon took five to six million years to be carved out. Yet when you do the math actually backwards at the current rate of decay that the Grand Canyon is, is going through, right, the age would be five to 6,000 years old. Right? Did you know that there's a canyon on Mars? Its, its size is so large that it would stretch across the entire United States. Right? And it's twice as deep. It's bigger than the Grand Canyon. It's two miles deep, I think. Scientists, NASA scientists, will tell you that that canyon on Mars was created in three weeks. But yet they won't turn around and apply that same science to the, anything here on Earth. They'll tell you, no, no, that takes millions of years to happen. The fossils forests and the coal they found in Spirit Lake, again, are proof that things can happen quickly and suddenly. Because evolutionists, again, say all these things took millions of years to do, but guess what? All these things from Mount St. Helens were created in 24 hours. So, right? But then we also have historical records of the flood, not just all this scientific proof that shows a flood could have happened, that the flood could have do exactly what the Bible says it did, that we, global flood, but then you just have historical records of the flood too. And it shouldn't surprise you that many cultures have stories of a flood, right? A flood legend is part of the mythology of most ancient cultures. Literally hundreds of people groups have their own accounts and legends of a flood. I mean, if you study the legends of the Samokubo tribe of New Guinea, the Athapascan Indians of America, the Papago Indians of Arizona, the Brazilian tribes, the Peruvian Indians, African Hottentots, natives of Greenland, native Hawaiian Islanders, even Hindus, Chinese, Egyptians, Greek, Persians, Australians, the Welsh, Celts, Druids, Siberians, Lithuanians, etc., 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 go on and on and on. They all have flood stories. And when you compare of more than 200 cultures and you take all their flood stories and you lay them out next to each other, and you start comparing the similarities between them, this is what you find. 88% of these stories describe a favored family. 
right? 70% of these stories attribute survival to a boat. 95% of these stories say that the sole cause of the disaster or the catastrophe was a flood. 66% of these stories say that disaster is due to man's wickedness, right? 67% record that the animals were also saved. 57% of these describe that the survivors end up on a mountain, and many of the accounts also specifically mention birds being sent out, they mention a rainbow, and they mention eight people being saved. I'm sure that's all a coincidence. So why do you have all these similar and familiar flood stories through all these different cultures? Well, it's easy. Right? We'll get there. We're not there yet since Genesis chapter 11. It's Babylon, right? That's why. Right? Because the Bab- matter of fact, the Babylonian account of the flood is similar to Genesis in many ways. And it was clearly drawn upon the account that we have in Genesis. Right? And you remember at the time of Babylon, that's when God confused their language and he scattered the people across the gro- globe. That's when all these nations and cultures arise. But they all came from one common area sharing one common story. Right? All mankind came from Noah's sons. Therefore, all mankind remembers the flood. And all mankind has stories of the flood. And we know how stories go. Over time, they change, right? And the fish that you caught that was this big gets this big later on, right? So we know that's how stories change over time. But they all came from the same source. All these cultures and all these things have stories of the flood because all mankind comes from Noah's sons. We told them the story about Noah's flood. So it's all great and everything. I love the story, but you guys want application, right? You want to know how you apply this to yourselves. Right? Like I said, it's, it's one thing to build an ark. It's another thing to get on the ark. It's about follow through. Proverbs 69 tells us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So we make our plans. We go about our day. We have the things that we want to do, right? But ultimately, it's the Lord that determines that if we're following the Lord, right? So make your plans, go ahead. There's nothing wrong with making plans. Noah probably had made plans as well, right? Noah might've thought, well, this is a little inconvenient. I had a barbecue plan, right? But God, right? But God. So, you know, if you walk with God, then you work with God. And, if you, and then if you're working with God, you're gonna allow God to establish your steps, And if you allow God to establish your steps, then you're probably going to be surprised where God takes you. And there's a good chance it is not going to be what you planned. Like getting on an ark, for example, or going through a flood. But here's the thing. Let God plan your schedule. Let God establish your steps. There's a quote that says, some people like to rush ahead, some people like to drag their feet. That's backed up in the Bible, by the way. It, it's in Psalm 32.9 that says, be not like a horse or a mule, right? Without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle. Some people like to rush ahead. Some people like to drag their feet. I'm telling you, don't be like them, right? Instead, walk with God. You know, be like Noah. Do all that the Lord has commanded you, all right? Noah obediently and willingly went into a floating box, it wasn't a fancy looking cruise ship. It didn't have a pool on it, right? There was no all you can eat buffet, 
Maybe there was, I don't know. But Noah obediently and willingly got onto this floating box, which we told you before was more of a container ship than it was a cruise ship that was designed more for flotation than it was for navigation. And it was very similar in design to a coffin. Right? Which means Noah, in a sense, had to die to find life. Right? Noah's old life was dead to him. A new life was beginning. Noah had put his hand or put his life in the hands of God. Right? And he did it so he could find salvation. Noah had absolutely no control over how long he was going to be on the ark. And he had no control of where the ark went. And he had no control of where the ark ended up. I always would think it was funny if the ark ended up exactly where it started. But Noah had no idea. Because everything had changed so much, it looked completely different. Yet God was like, I, it's the same place. <laughs> right? But anyway, because God does that to us as well. Right? God calls us to him. He changes our life. He directs our steps. We go places we weren't expecting to do. We're doing things we weren't expecting to do. We get involved in stuff we weren't expecting to do. Everything is crazy, upside down, topsy-turvy. You're like, what's next? And he brings you right back to where you started. So all that was preparation for what I want you to do now. Right? So Noah just trusted and followed God. So walk with God. To end tonight, I want to read this Psalms because I think it applies. And, uh, you know, Noah had to trust God through this flood. He had to trust God that, that God would do what he said, that God was faithful. God was going to bring him through the flood. David understood this. And, and David wrote this Psalm, which is quite interesting. Let me read it to you. It's Psalm 29. It's not very long. It's 11 verses. And sorry if we're going over, you can live. It says, uh, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of a God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, voice, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. In his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Have you ever just sat outside during a thunderstorm? Maybe not. Sat on the porch in your rocker with your cup of coffee, with your feet up on the deck during a major rainstorm, right? And if you're not that crazy, maybe you sat inside and looked out the window, right, with your cup of coffee and your feet up on the fireplace or whatever, right? And just watch the storm unfold in front of you. Watch the lightning come down, right? Watch the rain pour. Watch the wind blow. <coughs> watch my voice give out. All those things. <coughs> I 
right? Amazed at the power of God's creation. Amazed at the glory and the strength of God. That's what David's doing right here. <coughs> David's watching the mighty power of God unfold in front of him. The strength of God that can break the cedars. The strength of God that can, that is, you know, over the flood. And he says, you know, who's mighty like this? No one, just God. But then he says, God is on his throne. Right? God is on his throne. <coughs> so what he's saying is, is that, thank you, is that no matter how great the storms of life are, and they can be very powerful and very destructive, and you know because you've gone through them, and they've affected you personally, God is still enthroned, he says. God's still enthroned. And that's what Noah had the faith to believe, right? I don't know what I'm going through. I don't know how long I'm going to be on this ark. I don't know how destructive the flood is. All I know is that God said we're going to get through it. And I trust God. God's still on his throne. And he's causing everything to work together for his good. Right? Here's the thing. God invited you in. God will see you through. Right? So follow the Lord. And do this, as it says in Hebrews 10. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Right? And let us consider how to stir one up, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And let me tell you, the day is drawing near. Right? The night is almost gone. So walk with God. Trust God. Follow God. Amen? We're going to...